Should we regulate online sex work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Nick Cowan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Nick Cowan. Nick is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Lincoln, where he teaches key social science concepts, human rights, social issues and social justice, images of crime, and applying research. He was a fellow at the NYU School of Law from 2016 to 2019, and has published research, among other places, in the American Journal of Political Science, the British Journal of Criminology, and Polity. He has work forthcoming in critical review of international social and political philosophy. Nick, welcome to The Curious Task. It's great to be here, Alex. Thank you. It's great to have you on. So Nick, our question today is, should we regulate online sex work? And before we get to the direct answer to that and maybe some specifics, and even the online part itself, I think it's good to zoom out a little bit and bring some context to this discussion and, and the industry overall. So, so let's start with this. Can you define what we mean by sex work overall in the context of our discussion? For instance, like some have this stereotype in mind when they think of the industry. It's probably reinforced by lots of American television and movies that when you say something like sex work, you're just talking about someone rolling up in a car in a 60s movie, picking up a prostitute or something like that. But that's not really what we're talking about, right? There's 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 things like indirect and direct sex work. This, this covers a whole spectrum of services that these workers can provide to their clients, doesn't it? Uh, that, that's right. That's right. So um, when we're looking at this sector, um, uh, sociologists like to divide it um, just for clarity between direct sex work, which uh, essentially involves uh, sort of sexual intercourse or kind of, you know, sort of uh, genital use, touching, um, actions like that. And um, indirect sex work, which can involve, um, you know, things like uh, uh, stripping, pole dancing, uh, live shows of some sort, uh, and of course, um, you know, ubiquitous uh, pornography, which is a, 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 you know, core part of the way that uh, um, various features of the internet works uh, these days. Um, And of course, there's more kind of innovative forms of indirect sex work that you're kind of finding on platforms like OnlyFans these days. And um, I suppose it's also important to kind of deflate the stereotype of the kind of the guy and the girl Mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of um, uh, thing as well. So, you know, I think it is true that when it comes to direct sex work, uh, probably it is, you know, cis males who tend to be the, uh, um, the the main buyers, but not exclusively, and increasingly not, you know, any any anymore. And then when we kind of widen it out to indirect sex work, then there's actually a large variety of. Um, services that are provided uh, for um, uh, for women and non-binary people as well. Uh, and of course, in sex work it, itself, um, you know, uh, obviously there are um, uh, women involved in sex work, but there are also uh, gay men and uh, uh, trans, uh, tra- trans people um, and, uh, you know, and actually a whole variety of people who would adopt uh, um, s- several uh, genders. So it's, um, uh, although, you know, it, it is it is somewhat gendered overall, um, there is a lot of diversity kind of, uh, you know, uh, hidden, which which that kind of cliche doesn't quite capture. Right. And, and when we layer sort of the, the internet or online discussion onto everything you just noted, it becomes clear that the internet can not only be used to deliver uh, different kinds of sex work services, but also, um, you know, arrange for or at least some some somehow um, be, be involved even if it's not involved. 
involved in the delivery of the services. In fact, this is very important because in your writing, you note that most sex work touches the online sphere, regardless of what service is being performed. Yes, that's 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 correct, because, um, you know, rather like the way that perhaps news uh almost ubiquitously touches the the online sphere in some way. Um, you'll find that, you know, sex work is one of those sectors um, where, uh, you know, the internet uh, delivers a great deal of, um, well, it, it, it permits levels of communication that were previously impossible. So the paper um, that uh, you, you've looked at um, focuses on direct sex work, because if we were looking at indirect sex work, um, you know, it'd probably be a whole a whole book, frankly, it might be eventually. But if we're when we're looking at, at, at direct sex work, essentially, um, this is the Internet offers various ways in which people can uh, arrange to meet up. Um, can negotiate prices uh, and can also kind of um, uh, better secure themselves, mostly through using things like reputation, which I think most of us would be familiar with from other sectors. And um, uh, basically the way we describe it is because um, sex work is a dangerous sector to work in, or rather it has, you know, kind of um, uh, risks and stigma attached to it, um, which makes it particularly difficult to in engage in safely. Um, the internet has really kind of, um, uh, it basically changed, brought about some some remarkable remarkable ways of, of increasing safety uh, compared to what was um, uh, what, what happened before. I mean, if I kind of explain a little bit where that comes from, um, so you know, part of the reason why sex work is unsafe on our account is because of criminalization. So because of the way the criminal law is involved means that um, almost by definition you're going to be dealing with uh, criminals, uh, whether you're um, you know just dealing with someone who wants to buy sex or perhaps you're just using people who uh, are managing the sector in some way. Um, so because of the criminalization, you're dealing with potentially you know uh, more, more dangerous clients um, already. But there's another angle to it which I which I like to kind put some emphasis on which is just in, in another sense it is a kind of personal service and personal services often have vulnerabilities connected with them regardless of legality uh, so for example taxi drivers um, they are kind of picking up people off the street, people they don't know, people right. they don't know if they can afford to pay, um, they don't know their background and they're going to head, um, uh, they're going to follow their directions in terms of where they're going to go about town uh, and they're using heavy machinery while they're doing it. So actually being a taxi driver is um, a relatively dangerous job. You know, it's not it's not massively dangerous, but it has more dangers associated with the, than many others. So it's unsurprising that platforms have played a very large role in ameliorating, not eliminating, but ameliorating many of those many of those things. And ultimately, you know, as I've described it, you're meeting strangers, um, you're bargaining um, over a very specific service. This stuff comes up in sex work as well. Um, and that would be the case whether it was le legal or illegal. So there, there are some aspects of personal services that are kind of worth kind of unpicking from a transaction cost perspective, um, you know, in addition to the kind of criminalization aspect. And just a little bit more on, on the criminalization aspect. And I have a few specific questions I want to drill into a little further about different ways we can look at, you know, laws and governments and how they approach it. But before we get to that, you, you did note in this paper we were referring to that, you know, despite everything in that paper and despite everything that we've even just been talking about, that policy seems to continue focus on regulating face-to-face -face sex work anyway Lar and you say quote largely ignoring the advancement of online sexual services and advertising so on the one hand can you get a bit more into that and on the other hand explain how that brings up some challenges for lawmakers when they're moving forward and thinking about how they would 
would, if they should, and we'll get to that later, be regulating this sort of activity? Yeah, um, well, I, I think that's it's a good question why lawmakers uh, tend to focus a great deal on, um, on direct sex work. I, I believe part of it is probably the nature of the internet and the fact that the internet was kind of set up, you know, kind of so its basic infrastructure and norms were established in the United States, which uh, has the First Amendment, which means that most forms of communication which don't involve direct transactions are quite hard to regulate in a US context. And because of the global nature of the internet, um, if you're, you know, say you want to host a pornography website, um, or you want to host p p pornography content, then all you have to do is find one jurisdiction that is prepared to host it. Right. Uh, and the United States is one large jurisdiction where it can be where it can be done. Um, so, um, you know, although there have been plenty of attempts to regulate pornography, um, you know, in, in, in various jurisdictions, including in, in the United States, although they usually fall afoul of First Amendment when it comes when, you know, when, when the uh, when the laws are tested in uh, in state or federal courts, um, uh, th that means that normally um, lawmakers have ended up focusing on direct sex work, which has traditionally been something that they've placed a great deal of, of emphasis on. So, you know, it's a cliche to say that sex work, um, you know, is the oldest profession. Um, but it's also the case that actually, you know, there's there's barely ever been a time where sexuality has not been subject to um, uh, very high levels of regulation, um, whether we're talking about uh, sex, sex for sale, or just sex in general, you know, that we, you know, a, a huge, you know, for, for vast, you know, over, uh, for millennia, um, you know, people have wanted to have sex, and other people have been trying to come in the way of people um, uh, having sex. Um, and what we find today is, um, although perhaps most people would agree that uh, adults should be allowed to have sex with um, other adults consensually in most relationships, that's kind of acceptable, although cultural norms are still, you know, quite challenging of like, you know, exactly how and when it should be done, but most are prepared to say that's, that that should be legal. When it comes to paid sex work, that's still a lot more, that's still, there's still a lot more division and, um, and questioning over that. Um, hence, uh, you know, that that's the area where where lawmakers tend tend to um, tend to focus their attention and, and drilling a little further into how lawmakers focus their attention, whether it's online or, or offline or in general, um, you've outlined that there's sort of like different approaches you one can consider on the one hand, the sort of suppression model or approach, and then on the other hand, the permissive model approach. And before we get into more specifics, I was wondering if you could, you know, just at a high level outline exactly what you mean by the suppression model or approach on the one hand, and the permissive model on the other. Yeah. So uh, I think it's probably best to think of it as more of a continuum or, or a spectrum than a, than a single uh, kind of thing. But I suppose on, on one end, you know, on the suppression end, you'd have kind of prohibitionism where you might ban everything that's related to sex work. So you would you would um, uh, criminalize um, uh, offering sex work, you'd criminalize buying sex. Um, you'd criminalize any third parties that are involved in facilitating sex. So that would kind of be a prohibitionist approach. Um, uh, another Another way of looking at it, uh, and perhaps one that's a bit more popular, for example, one that's been implemented in Canada since 2014, um, would be what is sometimes termed an abolitionist approach. And that kind of conceptualizes the sex worker as a victim, someone who's kind of been forced right. through circumstances or more directly into sex work. And so it would be wrong to criminalize them specifically. 
Uh, instead, you criminalize the buyer, um, or if that is sort of difficult for whatever reason, then you criminalize things around sex work. So advertising, uh, soliciting, or people um, in, in the UK, we call it curb crawling. So sort of um, uh, men kind of, well, men, stereotypically driving up and kind of, um, you know, uh, um, asking people if they're interested in, um, in, in having paid sex. Um, so there's, um, so that's the sort of thing that can kind of be um, uh, criminalized either as a public nuisance or as an attempt to suppress sex work on the basis that it's kind of intrinsically exploitative. That's, um, that's the kind of um, a, a more subtle um, and perhaps more popular these days kind of uh, a, a approach to suppressing sex work. And then on the kind of permissive end, you have kind of various um, regulatory approaches which say, well, this is a very specific kind of sector. It has various externalities associated with it. Um, it creates a public nuisance and it can be a source of exploitation. So we're gonna permit it, but we're gonna especially regulate it. And that's kind of common in the Netherlands, in Germany, um, and uh, well, a, a few districts in uh, Nevada would be kind of most most famously would kind of be a way of doing it. So you'd you'd have specific sites that are licensed. You'd have compulsory health checks um, to try and ensure that um, uh, you know this place has become a site for STD infection and spread that kind of thing. Um, so you try and handle that from a public health perspective, and you try and make sure that um, the, the businesses are being conducted above board, but on the basis that you're kind of suspicious. Of the um, of the way the sector is is, is operating, um, and then we have another approach which tends to be supported by sex workers themselves, and this is called decriminalisation, where basically you say you know like any other line of business, it's subject to civil law, tort law, negligence, and other kind of um, uh, rules that are generally applicable to any occupation, um, but that actually it's um, uh, there's no role for for criminal um, sanctions or licensing as such. It's just, uh, it, 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 it's just, you've just got to make sure that what you're doing is safe in, 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 in general terms. And that allows people basically to arrange sex work in multiple different ways. So whereas licensing would often be associated with brothels, um, it might be the case that um, sex workers would rather work independently, not be licensed in any particular way. Uh, they'd rather manage their own security, uh, perhaps through a platform. So platforms have, have, have made that a little bit more helpful. And that's what a decriminalization approach uh, allows, allows sex workers to do. So uh, generally speaking, you know, this, this would align with the classical liberal I I idea as, as well. You'd say, well, uh, outside of um, you know, ordinary tort law um, and, and normal laws against um, you know, theft, violence and fraud, um, that's, that's the level of regulation that you, um, that you need. And, and then that's, that's sort of like the, within that permissive discussion, that's sort of where you get that sort of legalization versus decriminalization paradigm, right? Precisely, precisely. So legalization would be, um, uh, well, it, it can mean different things depending on what people are trying to push, but it normally involves some level of, of licensing. That's the kind of, that's what they're, um, that's what they're normally going going for right okay okay and, and i want to get into a few specific uh questions now and, and shift gears a bit more into the costs surrounding this and the transaction cost model and, and thinking that you've applied to, to specifically the suppression model and basically serious laws against sex work but but before uh before we get into some of those specific questions i just wanted to actually ask you to paint sort of a picture with, with one of the stories that you do review in some of your writing namely the, the the back page story the company back page and what they went through i think i think some people what regardless of where they fall in this debate or where their opinion is 
is in, in what we're discussing here. Uh, you know, when we talk about laws and legislation and regulation, um, you know, they think people are going to jail, people are getting fined, maybe some platforms are being taken down because the FBI says, hey, could you shut down those servers? But, you know, people's doors getting kicked in and people going away to jail for a long time and things like that, even being associated with a company. Uh, that that deals with this kind of thing. I don't think that's in people's minds. So I was wondering if you could trace what happened, what what was Backpage, what happened there, and and why is that kind of thing important when we think of um, the context of how the law, especially in the states, is currently treating this industry? Because this is a fairly recent story, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, I, I mean, the, the thing with with Backpage is it kind of happens at around the same time as um, Foster Sesta, which was a, a big act supported by. Um, uh, uh, U.S., you know, both branches of the U.S. Congress and signed in dramatically by President Donald Trump, a, a rare bipartisan, especially around then, uh, uh, support. Um, and uh, the the arrest um, and the shutdown of Backpage kind of happens around that time. Not actually, it wasn't actually done on the basis of that law, but it was kind of happening around the same time. So it was both a kind of a legislative move and also a kind of criminal enforcement move. And um, I suppose it, it, it had come about a, a long time, it, you know, essentially a long time coming with um, Backpage had set itself up as the platform to go to um, for sex workers who wanted to um, uh, sell um, to, to sell their services and for buyers to come and, and, and meet them. And um, one of the reasons why they had become dominant was because there were a lot of platforms that had kind of been doing this in addition to other things. Um, so most famously Craigslist, which was probably the largest in this sector for a while. And I think we all, you know, probably all come across Craigslist, um, which, you know, in addition to, you know, offering jobs, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, re rental, you know, goods, all kinds of goods and services, and indeed personal, so kind of non-sex work, but just people interested in sexual relationships. Um, they had been a source for um, uh, for sex workers to advertise for a long time, and they'd been warned to stop doing it by uh, various attorneys general um, in, in the US states. Um, so basically, through um, this sort of informal pressure, this sector had kind of been emptied out of what we might think of as like the standard, you know, rather people who have a lot to lose, people who don't feel like having their doors knocked through um, at, at some point, people who, who are not reliant on this, on this sector. And um, uh, Backpage decided instead, uh, because it was very lucrative for a time, to move in, uh, be the main uh, be the main actor in this sector and rely on uh, First Amendment protections and in particular the kind of safe harbour uh, protections offered by the uh, Communications Decency Act. Um, so they they thought that they were pretty that they were pretty secure. They were being they were facing many many cases in the um, you know in, in U.S. courts and generally they won until they stopped winning. Um, and uh, basically the um, uh, several states uh, gathered uh, enough evidence to suggest that there was um, uh, trafficking taking place on the platform. Um, this sort of allowed, um, uh, you know, sort of state and federal um, uh, law enforcement to um, arrest uh, many, many of those uh, involved at the high, highest level and to shut down uh, Backpage it, it, itself. So um, uh, for a brief period, Backpage, I think, may have been I mean, it's estimated we've been processing around 70% of all um, sort of uh, mm. sex work-based transactions, you know, I suppose globally, because, you know, as, as you see in the paper, the shutdown of Backpage didn't just affect sex work in the US. It affected sex work being organized actually in legal 
um, places such as New Zealand. And people were using this for, for uh, legitimate purposes in other countries. But of course, sex work is criminalized um, in most parts of the United States. Um, and for that reason, you know, they they think, that, um, uh, you know, the uh, law enforcement believe that it's 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 uh, reasonable and proportionate to uh, arrest um, and imprison um, and shut down these platforms. So, so there was sort of an aftermath to this, right? So they act, the law actually went after Backpage. And then I think I think like there was something like one of the executives took a plea deal for so many years. Like this was actually pretty serious stuff right at the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 right. Well, I think once you're you're dealing with kind of federal, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 when you know when you look at it from a you know from a UK perspective in particular, the kind of number of years that people are facing, sort of multiple centuries, um, yes. should they lose a case? So normally the plea deal looks pretty nice compared to that, but I think it would have been several years for people who are you know essentially running a technology platform. Um, you know, so as we say in the paper, this is a way in which people, you know, Silicon Valley types or any entrepreneurs who are engaged in platform development, um, even if it's, you know, in the case of Backpage, they were, they were quite deliberate. They moved into this sector. I think they kind of knew partly what was go going on. They may have been a bit too confident, you know, in, in estimating how they could defend themselves from the law. Um, but anyone could be potentially, you know, anyone running a platform where sex work turns out to be taking place. Um, is is at risk of, um, uh, of of having that kind of knock at the door at, 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 at some point. Um, so yeah, the enforcement is pretty extreme in the United States when it comes to when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. And quick caveat before we jump right into some of the costs from especially an economic perspective on, on that, this sort of approach to policing sex work. Um, you did mention real quick that there was, of course, accusations against Backpage about things like trafficking, human trafficking. And I just wanted to bring up a point here about that where you, you say in your writing, quote, the stigmatized presentation of sex work and much public debate has led to a blurring of consensual sex work with a distinct problem of non-consensual sexual exploitation. I think this is very important to note because, you know, when we start getting into the discussion of transaction costs that some of these workers might face and how like online platforms help reduce that and how that can, you know, give us a better view into how potentially the law should or shouldn't even uh, tr treat any of this stuff. It's important to be 100% clear that right now in the public debate and discussion on this, there is a lot of that blurring. And I think that's quite troublesome, isn't it? I'm sure even when you give talks or have discussions here, this, this comes up to some degree. You know, so the people are still confused that the thing kind of thing you're talking about is not saying anything to do with sex trafficking or money for sex services in general is, is fine. Obviously, the non-consensual human trafficking element is still completely a problem. And that has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about. That's 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 true. I mean, I, I suppose it's it's also important to acknowledge that I suppose any platform that allows for consensual sex work could in principle be used to allow for involuntary um, uh, sex work. So the question is, uh, how do you kind of minimize it? Uh, how do you have, how do you allow authorities to, um, uh, to interdict and prevent it? Um, so I, I think there's kind of two kinds of NGOs that are kind of working in this sector. Um, uh, you know, one uh, tends to be practically interested in stopping human trafficking, often of a general kind, like they're looking at sex work, but actually human trafficking involves a, a great many sectors. And they'll be the ones who will tend to say, well, actually, it's kind of useful having these platforms and having them legal, because it means that there's a great, that, that's a great source of when someone's concerned about something, um, you know, when something's a bit ambiguous as to whether everything is, is voluntary and legal, it, they can be immediately referred and they've got themselves a, you know, a kind of a, a data trail. They know, you know, they can keep track of, of who's putting up these ad 
advertisements and that and that kind of thing. Um, so I think NGOs who are directly involved in attempting to interdict and prevent human trafficking and to punish human traffickers uh, don't tend to think of um, Backpage um, or perhaps more broadly, you know, platforms that are just in, you know, the, 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 that are, you know, sales platforms of various kinds as the enemy. Um, on the other hand, you've also got NGOs who are quite deliberately blur this distinction between um, voluntary and involuntary sex work or coerced sex. Um, uh, you know, sort of rape and sexual assault, uh, uh, essentially. And, and this goes back, you know, generations, you know, uh, back to, you know, the Mann Act, uh, the so-called sort of White Slavery Act, which, you know, first uh, criminalized, um, you know, se se sex work on the basis of what was then considered interstate uh, trafficking, um, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, and, and that was sort of brought, brought out, you know, sort of the height of the progressive era, uh, where there's a lot of concern about econo economic activity in general, economic mobility, people leaving their families, deciding to strike out on their own, you know, usual kind of independence, women participating in this kind of, in, in, in that sort of activity. So there's a general kind of moral panic about people, say, traveling to the city or crossing state lines. And, um, uh, and that sort of becomes a source of concern. Um, uh, and, 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 and so, um, you know, in, in this sector, you'll see a lot of a lot of organizations that put a great deal of um, uh, put, put in a great deal of effort basically to blurring this uh, this distinction, um, this important distinction between consent and non-consent. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. You know, there are some people all that to say that do come from the ideological point of view that these aren't people making rational in the economic sense uh, choices that they're either being coerced or, or basically that, that you can't really t talk about it like a market because essentially what you have is a bunch of coercive action, whether it be because of, you know, in, in some ideologies, like specific elements of the patriarchy or on the other hand, sp specific people effectively slave driving these people that it can't really be about be a market because the whole thing full stop is, is some sort of dynamic that just doesn't work uh, for the people that are actually providing the services. They're in fact coerced to some degree, whether it be socially or directly. So I think in, in order for us to understand your thoughts on the transaction costs, we have to understand these people as having agency. They are economic actors, just like you said a taxi driver would be. That's the pro that's the appropriate context, am I correct? That's that's right, that's right. Uh, now, I think it's worth noting that, you know, the, the classical liberal position, which you know, has been put like very straightforwardly by Jaworski and, uh, and uh, Brennan uh, most recently, is, is simply to say, if something is within your gift to give or do for free, then you should be allowed to do it for money. Um, so for example, I can't sell my senior lectureship um, and that's okay, you know, uh, because I can't give it away either. So that's, that's fine. So it's like, so there's a lot of things that we have, you know, we're in possession of, which we're not allowed to sell, but also we tend not to be allowed to give them away either. That's kind of the way that we do it. And, and the idea would be that sex work is the same way. So in other words, if you're allowed to have um, sex, you know, um, uh, with other consensual adults for free, you should be allowed to do it. You know, if you have if you have agency to be able to do that, then you should have the agency also to be able to do it for money. Now, to be fair, in this debate, there are uh, some very interesting um, theorists, uh, sort of uh, mostly from the radical feminist position, who would actually bite the bullet on that. And they would say, right, right. well, actually, you're quite right. Um, you're, you're, you're quite right. Um, that isn't a huge difference. And actually, this is a problem because within patriarchy, no one really has agency to give sex away for free without kind of certain kind of social or psychological cost either. Um, and in fact, if you look at conservatives as well, some of them would say, well, outside of marriage, um, you're kind of lacking agency or you're lacking kind of relevant understandings of, of what sex means. 
Um, so, so that would be an, that would be an interesting conference with both those two realizing that they were on the same point. Well, well, and on this particular front, I mean, they both tend to be in favor of of criminalizing or at least, you know, severely limiting sex work. But to be fair, they do have some consistency on this front. They would say that sex is something which is not really within your agency just to do willy nilly. And the fact that you might be selling it or not selling it, you might be doing it for some other reason, I don't know, to impress someone or, you know, or even just for fun. Um, that's not really good enough either. So there are some people in this in, in this sector that that uh, sorry in, in this debate who've who I think they've got more consistent positions, anti-classical liberal positions, but they they at least are kind of prepared to go like yeah, this thing about selling it that's not that's not the problem for us. But it, what's interesting is that generally generally like out there, generally people will accept that you're allowed to have sex with who you with who you want. Um, uh, for free, but it's the selling part that really bothers them, I, and I find that really, really fascinating because that's the sort of and that's the sort of debate that you know it comes up in all kinds of noxious markets or, or alleged noxious markets, um, and this is like one case. This is this is another case where that comes up. And that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task, and I'm speaking with Nick Cowan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Chris Rondolo, Randy T. Simmons, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nick Cowan today. So, Nick, I think we had a great conversation on the front end. It provided a lot of context for our discussion and a great entryway into some of your thoughts specifically that ultimately tie back to our main question, which we are going to hope to answer and get a little more into specifically now, which is, uh, should we regulate online sex work? And, and before we get, again, right into that yes or no, your point of view on this is that we can look at everything and how the law should approach this uh, through sort of the uh, lens of transaction costs. So could, could you explain at a high level what would you mean when economists or others are going to look at things through transaction costs and how you think it's appropriate to look at this whole discussion basically with that lens on? Yeah, so transaction costs are amazing. Uh, at least as, as a concept, it can help explain uh, such a great deal. It's something that uh, uh, Mike Munger famously says that, uh, you know, if you're kind of in a new institutional economic seminar and a question comes up about why something is the way it is, um, if you've fallen asleep for the rest of that seminar, you can probably just say transaction costs <laughs> right, and you'll yeah. probably be right. It's like Milton Friedman and like, you know, in macroeconomics, the answer is always the money supply. So, um, and uh, what it what it is is basically okay. So start off with some theory of having a perfect market. So uh, goods and services travel instantly to precisely where they are most valued by the the, the relevant buyer, with with countless buyers and sellers um, all able to immediately see one another, understand what their utilities are, and immediately be able to to allocate resources um, uh, uh, competitively. Um, so. Uh, uh, does that explain the world as we see it? No, not really. We see lots and lots of complexities. Uh, we see a need for regulation. We see firms that deliberately get 
you know, they, they operate um, outside of the market. So they get a whole bunch of people, they get a whole bunch of resources, and they kind of arrange um, and configure their kind of capital structure in such a way that they can then sell, um, you know, their eventual goods on, 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 onto the market. Um, why don't people just contract with one another as, you know, as, as independent uh, suppliers for everything? Why isn't everything just one long supply chain where everyone just does their own little thing and then sells that on? Uh, and the answer is, is transaction costs because it would take a very, very long time for most people, you know, working freelance to achieve, you know, most things such as in industrial production and, and uh, you know, any number of goods and services are much more efficiently provided um, by having certain kind of ways of, of uh, managing governance um, in order, to, because the transaction costs in that context are lower than relying on the, on the market. Um, so, in the context of platforms, so this is where we're discussing the role of, of kind of platforms as a kind of way of, of, of solving transaction costs, they kind of come in and they kind of change the, the picture a little bit. So um, whereas in the past, uh, you know, say a, a company or a firm might be better providing taxis because you know they can have like a brand uh, they can make sure everyone's licensed they can check that the drivers are, are, are safe and 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 that and that kind of thing so you're going to have a company that kind of they might be relying on contractors or they might hire people and, and kind of keep them keep them on the job that might depend a little bit on the market that they're kind of uh, uh, they're kind of doing that would help create like a safe taxi cab company or, or a service that people are willing to use. Um, what platforms do is basically allow individuals to kind of set up, uh, use the platform as a way of solving many of the transaction costs um, that the firm in the past would have would have dealt with. So what you're seeing with platforms is a lot of independent contractors, a lot of independent consumers um, dealing with each other, and you have one large third party, um, well, it might be quite a small third party, it might just be an app on your phone and a few people in Silicon Valley managing it, but eventually they become quite big because they have to handle things, have to handle disputes and things at scale. Um, but uh, they're, they're essentially um, creating infrastructure which allows these markets to act um, uh, uh, with, with, a, with, with much lower transaction costs. Now, specifically for these platforms, um, there's a, there's a great kind of little paradigm that kind of suggests there's kind of three specific ones that are particularly useful um, in, in, in the, in, for, for the platform case. So there's search costs, basically buyers and sellers being able to find each other in one place. That's very difficult sometimes. There's bargaining costs, figuring out how much buyers are willing to pay and buy and, and how much sellers are willing to um, are, are, are willing to get. So that's a big problem when you're dealing with any specific service, anything where everything's a little bit bespoke. So if you're going to get your car fixed, you know, this is a problem where bargaining comes in and suddenly there's a lot of informal elements that normally come into figuring out, okay, how much is this person prepared to pay? How quickly do they need it? In what kind of desperate situation are they? When, how soon do they need to get their car fixed? That kind of thing. And then there's also enforcement costs. So, um, you, you, you know, having agreed the contract or having agreed the service, um, uh, you need to make sure that that service is carried out. You need to make sure um, that payment is actually forthcoming, having been agreed. And you also need to make sure that everyone's safe during and after uh, that, that uh, process. In other words, you need to know that you're not dealing with, um, you know, with, uh, with a potential criminal or an offender who might be interested in, in committing theft or fraud or even violence against, against you. So if you're gonna to have to deal with someone in person, a stranger, um, then that's a transaction cost. We're realizing that you need security. You need personal. So you either need to be confident in your own ability to ensure your security, or you need some kind of environment 
um, where you're going to be satisfied that you are secure. Um, and platforms um, help to solve all, all three of those, um, and they use innovative strategies such as um, reputation, IDs, um, uh, uh, data which they collect on, on people's behavior up until then, um, and, uh, you know, and, and a kind of complaints and dispute resolu resolution um, uh, mechanisms. So they provide a lot of these things and they allow, um, and perhaps most importantly, what they do is they put everyone in one place. So you right. know, if you want to find someone to drive you somewhere, there's one platform well there's two or three platforms that you can use and you'll find someone in the area geographically you know thanks to sat satellite navigation that they'll they'll know exactly who is willing to carry you to your your fare you can tell them you don't always have to do this but you can tell people in advance where you're planning to go so someone sees it as an offer they say this is how much they're going to get paid this is um this is where you're going to have to travel and people can make that decision about wh what they're willing to do um without having to sort of negotiate kind of on the fly so to speak and and actually you have a quote from you here too just to supplement everything you've just been saying which is the following issue surrounding sex work have often been segregated from mainstream scholarly discussion. This has led to the facilitation of sex work through online platforms being presented as a unique problem that requires its own analysis and legal constraints. You know, so there might be some listening to this or just or many out there that basically say, well, you know, you're, you're talking about sex work again, like like we're just saying Uber, that this stuff isn't analogous. I mean, lawmakers have a whole other task ahead of them. Uh, this is sort of different. And of course, here you're saying, well, no, no, it's not. The part of the problem is that we we and many people, lawmakers, maybe special interests or many in the general public do look at this type of service, sex work, just a different kind of work as its own unique problem that needs its own unique discussions, own unique models, own sociological models to look at. But what you're basically saying is think Uber. Think, think think this kind of way when we're talking about online platform. Obviously, there's nuances, but at the end of the day, there are basic approaches to economic thinking and how, again, if the state should be regulating this, that fall right in line with other things that have already been dealt with. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm glad you said there are nuances to that because yes, there are obviously specific complexities um, relating to, to to sex work. You know, as as is the fact that you know normally. Uh, most people would not object to the idea that you give a friend a lift to the airport, you know, like that doesn't normally come up as a problem. Um, uh, whereas, in fact, if you kind of look at a lot of the debates these days, there's a lot of fear around uh, Uber, uh, around, um, you know, kind of uh, these these platforms in general. Um, so, you know, whether we're talking about Facebook and communication platforms uh, or these sort of uh, tech platforms that are meant to be running things. Amazon is another thing that people tend to worry about. Um, so, you know, there are things that lawmakers are kind of interested in. And it is interesting that, that um, uh, people do find you know, the Uber model almost particularly icky in some ways. Um, I, I think, I guess it's because they don't like the idea. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously there's, there's quite a lot of special interests involved. So there are people who don't like the, the disruption going on and there are local governments that kind of benefit from being able to run, you know, uh, taxi cab companies sort of locally. So mm -hmm. there, there might be something that sort of explains that. But I don't think it's entirely that. I think there might be a kind of concern that, you know, obviously, if you have a vast, you know, if, if, if you have a platform that's running enormous um, uh, services, you know, globally, perhaps some people feel a little bit icky about having dispute resolution mechanisms being run from, you know, an office in Silicon Valley, you know, so it might be like, you know, it, it looks like kind of privatized governance on some level. And I think the other side of it would be, obviously, as I said, this is kind of reducing 
certain sectors to freelance that would previously have been um, employee based. And I think a lot of people think that, that um, uh, you know, secure employment is very important. Um, this thing doesn't come up quite so often in the sex work sector, but it is possible to imagine it doing so because, you know, some uh, you know, some some licensed um, uh, frameworks would say, well, no, no, okay, sex work is okay, but it has to be on the based on standard employment practices. So you can't be freelance, you can't be a contractor, it's too dangerous for that. We need firms uh, that will be running, you know, specialized areas of so brothels, essentially, um, and you have to receive, um, they'll, they'll charge a standard set of fees that we might have to regulate, and we're going to pay your wages and your salary, um, you know, using that on a kind of standardized and very transparent basis. Whereas, you know, platforms where a lot of this negotiation can happen between individuals, or it's set by some algorithm somewhere, uh, that I, I can understand people feeling uh, concerned about it, even though on the whole, I think when you look at it through a transactions cost framework, it looks like everyone benefits if you if you if you at least permit platforms to operate. I'm not saying, you know, everything needs to become platforms. I'm not like a platform maximalist. I still see a big role for firms, but I, I think that the platforms uh, play a very useful role in the kind of ecosystem uh, and increasingly so in this kind of area of personal services. But it is also interesting to note that um, especially like, you know, if people aren't a proponent of, if you will, like the more permissive framework around all of this, that often their conversation is very much focused around for whatever reason, like the direct interaction between the uh, the supplier of the service and, and the pe person demanding it or the platform in question itself. But as far as transaction costs are concerned, there's also you know, secondary and tertiary considerations as well. If, if people are worried about illegal activity, sometimes it seems to me it doesn't occur to them that, you know, having the direct interaction, the direct action illegal also encourages other forms of illegality, if you will. For instance, like sex workers would probably be avoiding using some financial transaction platforms to process their money stored in a bank or whatever the case may be. Because, you know, if you start that chain of events of getting audited for taxes, so on and so forth, basically there's a whole sphere of illegality created by regulating one of the dominoes over here, if you will. And I think that's also very important to, for people to note if they're worried about law and order and, and what's illegal and what's not, sometimes on the cost benefit analysis, that that one direct action being a little more permissive about it actually knocks a, a bunch of other things more into the legal realm than they may think. Uh, absolutely, it, it, it could do, although it sometimes rolls in the opposite direction too, where you kind of, you, um, you legalize or you decriminalize the direct action because you say, oh, well, we don't want to be arresting sex workers. A lot of reasonable people think, you know, I don't like the sector, but I don't, but I, I don't want to just be arresting sex workers. That's not going to help. Um, uh, but they kind of try all these indirect ways of trying to prevent it from happening. And and that, I, on, on my account, is is somewhat problematic because it basically means you create a, a gigantic market for sketchy uh, financial um, transactions. So you know, um, uh, people end up, you know, so sex workers might end up storing, you know, their funds in, so in not in banks, uh, but in uh, you know, in, in other services, payment platforms that are kind of not very well known. They might go out of business, or they might just suddenly freeze the assets, or that 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 kind of thing. Um, so there's all kind of kind of dangers that um, you know, sort of financial risks that um, uh, that that. Uh, sex workers uh, have to navigate um, and um, you know uh, platforms you know for a time have helped to kind of ameliorate that because at least you know they 
at least it's possible to kind of arrange transactions through anywhere in the world. So if there's one platform that's offering something safe, then that will be the one that uh, that, that sex workers will gravitate towards. But it's, uh, you know, it, it, at, at the same time, you know, so it's above the, those payment platforms, you've got like Visa and MasterCard and these, you know, these other kind of um, ones that are kind of, um, that can be much more easily pressured by the government. And so there's always this risk that these funds, even if they're not illegal, they're not being, they haven't been illegally um, uh, obtained, right. but they're kind of disliked. They're considered immoral. And because of the immorality of them, uh, payment platforms are kind of very, you know, uh, uh, basically you get the sketchier payment platforms that are willing to that are willing to use it. For the final swing of our conversation here, like we've explored a lot of concepts. I want to kind of tie them all back together towards the end of it. Let's ask the, the fun ideal economics question. So how do we how do we optimize all this, right? So let's start from the top and work our way back down. We talked about the, the suppression versus the uh, uh, permission, uh, permissive model. Obviously, you seem from from your perspective and your lens with transaction costs and so on to, to prefer that that permissive model approach. You think that's the starting point of the conversation for how we can we can get things in order in this sphere well okay so optima i i kind of um i, I write a little bit uh, in the framework of robust political economy which tends to um sort of reject optimality as the baseline or the or the aim that you should be going for rather what you're thinking about is worst case scenarios and think about institutions that are best able to kind of cope with um to, to cope with them so i wouldn't necessarily say that I, I wouldn't say that we could ever really know what the optimal would be, um, but what what we could what what we'd say is that the advantages of decriminalization is not that it's actually particularly great on its own. Sex work uh, can be very dangerous. It's highly stigmatized culturally. It's a, you know it's a it's it's a very it's a taboo kind of activity. Um, so, you know, and that's that's something that is going to take a long time to kind of lift, um, although I do feel that criminalization contributes to the stigma. So I think, you know, it's, there's a lot of other dimensions to it that we have to we, we have to worry about. The advantage of decriminalization is that it allows for experimentation in self-governance. Uh, and that's kind of what these platforms um, uh, 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 allow for. So, you know, to be fair, it's often an entrepreneur that's coming in and saying, oh, I think I can allow um, sex workers to engage in self-protection, perhaps to communicate with each other, you know, because they can share information more easily and to, um, uh, you know, in, in, and to kind of make use of my facilities to um, to know more about their clients and their potential clients. That's the kind of thing that, they, that, that they're offering. Um, and we don't really know how these services are going to operate, um, you know, how, what the best, you know, what the best outcome is. So what we need to do is offer a space for experimentation. And what I see platforms as offering is this kind of opportunity for proprietary governance. Now, the big, the great thing about the internet and internet platforms in particular is that unlike most forms of governance, it doesn't actually require any particular geographic um, uh, monopoly. Um, and actually, although you might imagine that these platforms like one might take over, so as Uber calls itself Uber because it probably wants to be the big the big guy. Right. But actually, it turns out that uh, because there aren't any geographic restrictions, uh, a lot of these platforms can survive alongside each other for a long time, you know, and you check out both, you know, you might check out both um, uh, the, these sort of, uh, you know, or, or, or multiple platforms um, when you're deciding on, on your services. And that means you've got competition. Um, so you've got rivalry, you've got them trying out new things. And as a result, you've kind of got this, uh, this way of, um, 
uh, you know, you've got you've got more opportunity to basically try out what works best for the people who are kind of engaged, who, who, are, who are engaged in sex work. And so ultimately, decriminalization is the one is the is what um, sex workers tend to agree is the uh, is the best, uh, the best model for them. Uh, and I, I, uh, I agree with that. And I think that one of the reasons why that is the case is because it leaves this space open for people to figure out ways of managing the security implications that are still very present, even if you do, even if you decriminalize completely. So when we con- we contrast that the decriminalization to legalization, again, back to that within the context of our discussion of should we regulate, what you're saying to people is that if they're thinking of regulation and back to that traditional sense where you were saying where you need to have such and such firm, such and such license, and you know you, you tumble down that rabbit hill, of course, if we're making the value judgment that we should be coming from the classical liberal, that yes, perspective where we do want more of a market for that decriminalization is how you're going to sort of hit that medium it's not going to be you know putting people on payroll paying payroll taxes licensing it and so on and so forth absolutely absolutely i mean it would be nice if that was an option though so in other words if 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 we could you know so decriminalization would permit um uh, sex workers should they choose to i don't know enroll in the various services in the in the various of government backed services as well so it it would be nice if for example sex workers were able to contribute to their own pension funds as if they were you know on on the same kind of tax efficient basis that employees and self-employed people are normally allowed to so it would be yeah that that would be something i would kind of look forward to so i'm not against regularization as such it's not like i want everything to be on the periphery and, and 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 whatnot but i i i feel that um uh, yeah, that um, you need to allow that kind of space to operate in order to see, you know, what happens, you know, what these platforms are able to produce. Yeah, no, no, it's very important to clarify, like the ideal versus the practical, like, it, it, uh, of course, I act, I, my bias is that I agree with you 100%. If, if legalization actually meant legalize something and let it be, then that's one thing I absolutely agree with you. But we we're sort of mixing the implication of the policy implications yeah. in there, which is that that's ten, tends to not be what it means. Like, for instance, in Canada, uh, we, we say that ca- uh, cannabis marijuana is, is legal, but there's some people that when they look at the regulations and go through the thousands of pages, they say this is some people have nicknamed it prohibition too. Absolutely. I think that would be another example. So legalization sounds great, which is why sometimes people who are still got a bit of a suppression kind of motivation might borrow that word decriminalization they sometimes try and use that word too but they struggle a little bit with it because it kind of has a more I suppose, direct implication of like yeah, yeah just get out it has a more kind of laissez-faire kind of um uh feel to it I, I i guess well i think that's that's a great time for us to move into our our formal wrap-up uh in, in each episode i want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word and the chance to tie everything back and put a finer point on everything we've talked about. So let me let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether we should regulate online sex work and everything we've talked about? If you want someone to have one or two or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would those be? The, the takeaway is that um, we, we shouldn't treat sex work as being some kind of stigmatized and exotic kind of activity. We should think of it as an activity that has risks associated with it that are kind of intrinsic to, you know, the kind of personal service that is being offered. So the fact that you're dealing with, um, you know, dealing with strangers in very often in a private setting, that's the kind of practical way in which you should think about the problems that kind of that that are there. And from that perspective, that's where you should see what platforms can do. so, you know, you can regulate platforms, you know, in the sense that, you know, they should be liable if they're kind of negligent, if they lose your data, misuse your data, um, if they're uh, engaged in um, uh, 
you know, if they're facilitating fraud or if they're kind of seizing uh, uh, money that's sort of transacted over them, that kind of thing. Um, so you need regulation for, uh, you know, for that sort of behavior. But in terms of them just facilitating this work, um, that is not an area where this should be regulated. It, from what we can tell, the best academic evidence so far suggests that they are responsible for reducing bad outcomes, so especially violence against uh, against sex workers. Um, so that's why I, I, I suggest a permissive and indeed sort of decriminalization approach and why I feel that uh, criminalizing uh, platforms uh, that happen to that uh, either specialize or allow sex workers uh, to transact on them, uh, that's, uh, that's a bad idea. I think we'll leave it there. Fantastic. Nick Cowan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.